0: Welcome to the ad nauseum podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, ad nauseum listeners, to episode 102. My name is Dr. David C. Noe, and I'm here in the vomitorium south in the bottom of the bunker with my good friend and incredible co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. Jeff, how are you? Thank
1: you for those kind words. I appreciate that. Which part? The the good friend, and you said incredible uh, co-host. I, I see. Yeah, okay. Exactly. I don't think I've gotten that high praise. Really? Yeah, exactly. All right. All right. I
0: stand by it.
1: Excellent. No, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great. I just I just came from the classroom as we were just talking yes. to drive over here, so that always invigorates me a little bit. And so I'm, I'm ready to talk some classics. How about you?
0: Uh, I'm feeling resonant. Resonant? Yeah, I feel like I have a lot of uh, voom in my voice. Yeah. But I don't have a lot upstairs.
1: Really? That's correct. Okay, well, you sound like you got the good radio voice going on right now. I got that part, yeah, yeah. but
0: uh, there's no substance. Okay, well. I'm well, going to be like a hollow shell. Well,
1: don't sell yourself short. I mean, okay. We're going to see what happens. It, at least it always picks up steam. You think so? It does. Okay. Yep. So, Dave, what are we talking about today?
0: We're going to continue on with Virgil and the Aeneid. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in book six, and I think we're going to try to wrap it up. Is that right? We
1: have. We spent several episodes in in book six. This but... will be
0: the fourth one, if oh, wow. I'm not mistaken, okay. on book yep. six. We're going to bring it home. Mm-hmm. We're going to exit the underworld, conclude the catabasis, and get ready for the brawl, which is books seven through 12. That's
1: right. That's right. That's so it's on to, it's, it's, it's up the Tiber.
0: That's right. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we don't have a shout-out this week, but we have um, a listener observation. Is that right? Kind of like a viewer mail. Yeah. It's listener a, mail. It's
1: a bit of a, a corrigendum. You uh, think so? I think All so. Right. It's, uh, I, I appreciate it. This is, comes from uh, one Aaron Potter. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Mr. Potter?
0: I don't believe that I ever had Mr. Potter no. in one of my classes, although his uh, younger brother... Uh, went to Italy with us. Finally, oh, yeah. man. That's right. That's right. Mm, yeah. yeah.
1: So I had uh, I had Aaron in in a few Latin classes. Okay. Excellent student. Great. And I always appreciate his his contributions. So um, I I was very happy to kind of receive this. Yes,
0: and uh, he sent us some. Should we call it a diatribe, or is that unfair?
1: I don't th- I don't I don't see really any any venom here. Well, I would
0: like to mischaracterize it from the get go. Oh, okay, exactly. That would make it easier to dismiss it later on. Well, we
1: can read it with like, like some seething, um, it kind of dripping with acid. I can right? do that. All right. a,
0: a venomy feel. <laughs>
1: You wanna? You wanna? Um, you wanna yeah. get into this? Okay. Let's see if
0: we can twist these words. All right. Salve te magistri. It
1: starts out with the uh, with the Latin uh, greeting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hello, teachers.
0: Yeah. I continue to enjoy. I'm going to introduce a lot of scare quotes here, <laughs> where they don't exist. <laughs> the listener should imagine I'm I'm flexing uh, the first and second fingers on both of my hands. <laughs> I continue to enjoy listening to the Ednasian podcast, and though you may find this hard to believe, I don't find anything hard to believe anything I'm, I'm really? totally credulous okay okay I actually listen to every single episode, even the ones Doctor Noe bemoans as duds. Okay. Do I do that?
1: Sometimes I do some bemoaning. Sometimes you can kind of go down that that dark, depressive alley, you mm. know. And and uh, I mean, there are certain episodes that you'll bring up from time to time, and just kind of and just kind of shake your head at the low numbers, and yeah. that kind of thing. But but it's all very deliberate, right, to
0: try to prod people into listening. Exactly. To them. Right. It's a little uh, what do they call it, dog and pony show?
1: There you go. But for 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 Aaron here, he doesn't need prodding. He listens to them all. He
0: does. I appreciate okay. that. Yep. Well, go on with what he says next though because it's a little bit of a captain bring down
1: oh okay so he says at the moment however I'm a few episodes behind mea culpa so I only just listened to the episode use your illusion one about classical references in pop music Okay Okay So this is what he's, he's
0: That was doing. a title of which you were especially pleased Still am With which you were especially S- pleased S- Still am,
1: exactly I look okay. forward to Use Your Illusion too. All right. Okay. All right
0: He says In this episode, Dr. Noe argued that the reference to Odysseus and the Sirens Was rather obvious in the Mumford and Sons song, The Cave mm-hmm. Maybe so, but as a huge Mumford and Sons fan I wanted to come to their defense And point out a much more obscure reference in the song That you missed, but that I think you would both appreciate All right The song has a line that goes, so come out of your cave, walking on your hands, which Dr. Winkle pointed out as a reference to Plato's allegory of the cave, which it most definitely is. All right. It seems like a little bit of special pleading there, Aaron. (laughs) It most definitely is because you say it most definitely is. Well,
1: remember, he was my student. So I think, you know, I I think I may have kind of a a bond here with with Aaron that, that you don't. Why don't you continue? Okay. He says, however, and much more obscurely. It is also a near direct quotation from G. K. Chesterton's biography of Saint Francis of Sisi. Quote Francis, at the time or somewhere about the time when he disappeared into the prison or the dark cavern, underwent a reversal of a certain psychological kind. The man who went into the cave was not the man who came out again. He looked differently, he looked at the world as differently from other men as if he had come out of that dark hole walking on his hands. Hmm. That's really interesting.
0: it is I'm persuaded
1: right So uh, I remember when we did that episode it was that element that, that puzzled us right coming right. out of the cave okay that's that's platonic yeah but why is he why is he doing a handstand right okay. And so apparently this this is it
0: this is it yeah nice job Aaron He says as someone who loves all of the people involved in this illusion Plato, Saint Francis, Chesterton, Mumford and Sons Jeffy doesn't name us.
1: I know, I know. I know. I'm going to try to ignore that. And give All him right. the benefit of the doubt. He Jeff? says,
0: I just love knowing this and seeing how many layers the song has to dig into. To cite my sources, I have to admit that this isn't an illusion I spotted on my own but one brought to light for me when a speaker whose name I don't remember shared this song in a chapel service when the song was new and I was still a high school student.
1: Also, some, some guy up there with a the guitar just mentioned this? I guess so. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah.
0: All right. Maybe that was the way in which the person, you know, justified its use in a chapel service. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I can connect this to G.K. Chesterton.
1: There you go. Yeah. I don't
0: know. You want to conclude for us?
1: Yes. Yeah, so he writes, Still, that just shows the importance of teachers sharing the classics with the younger generations because it has stuck with me ever since. I hope you are both having a wonderful fall, and I look forward to listening to more excellent and erudite ad nauseum content, wallet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's really nice. That is very nice. That's, maybe that's better than a shout out, Buster. I it mean, is. Yeah.
1: It is. Yeah. That, that, I think that that functions as both. Okay. Uh, he, he he added something Correct. To, to it. It was kind of a gentle correction, mm-hmm. but I found this very, very interesting.
0: He threw yeah. in lots of you know compliments and kind things so that we wouldn't get our, our dander up.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. I do have a question though, yes, please. at the risk of kind of going off on a, on right. a, a rabbit trail. Do you know this the story of St. Francis going into the, the cave? I don't know that element in his biography. No. No, no? okay. No, we
0: have both been to Assisi. We have. On that cold January day where men were stationed outside the. Basilica with Tommy guns remember that I
1: do remember that mm-hmm. a, a, a beautiful hill town medieval hill town there. very nice yeah. and an elaborate tomb Yes,
0: almost as much marble in that tomb as in the Vatican. Yeah, I mean probably not but an amazing amount of marble
1: Right and in a fashion that I I think maybe would have troubled St. Frankie himself.
0: I think so I mean, I would have
1: imagined being buried in such you know opulence no know. extravagance
0: yeah. Maybe not. I don't remember that story. I only remember the standard stories of uh Saint Francis.
1: He's got he had he had a thing for animals.
0: Preaching to the birds. Well right. he said, you know, if men won't listen to me, I'll turn and go to creation and I'll speak to them. Right. Which has a, you know, kind of a biblical precedent, Isaiah chapter one, check it out. There you go. Oh,
1: nice. Right. And I suppose in a kind of standard standard kind of spiritual biography, it's kind of the catabasis of uh of uh, going into the desert, right, and to to confront uh, demons your own and and other, and then you come back returned and changed and cleansed. Yes, well,
0: he was an aristocratic young man, wealthy, and just grew disillusioned with the life that had been planned for him. Mm -hmm. He got tired of, you know, drinking lattes and scrolling Twitter and said, I have to do something (laughs) more important with my life.
1: Right, right, right. Well, thanks, Aaron. That was great. I appreciate that. So maybe when it comes to use your that was always my my thing. I was nervous about with the use your illusion is I thought, well, there's going to be be people out there who know these songs better than than I do, than we do. Yeah. And they're going to be they're going to be scoffing. Yes. So I appreciate Aaron's approach. He did he didn't scoff. He just said, hey, I can add to that and make it more interesting, which he did.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah. So, Jeff, you have the opening quote for today's journey into all things Virgil.
1: Right. And so this is, um, this is an article called, um, from an article called Aeneas and the Gates of Sleep from one R.J. Tarrant from an article from classical philology way back in 1982. Mm. And this refers to, so when, um, we'll get to this at the very end of the episode, I hope. Um, Aeneas leaves the underworld. Um, he has a choice of, of two gates. And he can go by the gate of true dreams and the gate of false dreams. And uh, he leaves by the gate of false.
0: Nicknamed Bill and Melinda, is that?
1: <sighs> yes. Bill, okay. He lives, leaves by the Bill and Melinda gates, right? <laughs> false dreams. And that has, has been one of the things, like the, like the sticky bow, like we yes. were talking about. Like, what does this mean? Conctantum. Right. right. And so uh, the, the falsa insomnia, what does this mean? So uh, Tarrant writes, the oblique connection of Aeneas and falsa insomnia, however it operates, must have a negative effect. The associations of deception, illusion, and unreality are disturbing, even ominous. This view of Aeneas' departure might seem to clash with the glorious vision of Roman history which Anchises has revealed to his son, but it is important to recall that Anchises' prophecy does not end with the triumph of Augustus, but with the early death of Marcellus. The fate of the young man is lamented at such length and with such violence of emotion that the rest of Enchises' prophecy, containing the instructions for which the entire journey was made, is thrown into shadow." The book ends in an atmosphere of muted grief. Note, for example, the absence of direct speech, after line 886. In this respect, it resembles the four preceding books, each of which ends with a loss of someone close to Aeneas. Have we... I mean, we've talked about this, but as Tarrant writes this, it strikes me that I didn't notice that as a pattern. No. Um, that there's the... Each of these books ends with a, with a loss.
0: Mm-hmm. So book one is... Uh... The death of Anchises is at the end of book one? No, that's not no, right. I think
1: it's later. I'm, I'm forgetting with book one, of uh, of course, the death of Dido. Right. Um,
0: book two is the fall of Troy, death of Creusa.
1: They find that the the body of their, hel- not the helmsman, but one of their- Palinurus. The, the Palinurus dies, but they also kind of find the, the body of someone washed up on the beach that they have to take care of. So um, I thought that was interesting that, that, okay, it's already a pattern that's set in book mm. six ends a, uh, with another mm-hmm. a loss, albeit a, a future loss from the point of view of the characters.
0: Right. right.
1: So the phrase, uh, Sokyosque rewisit, invites backward glances of this kind, recalling two earlier occasions when Aeneas returned from a shattering personal experience to find his ships and men waiting, a visible reminder of his mission and destiny. Mm. So Tarrant interprets uh, uh, the false insomnia as, there's no way around it. This is, this is dark. This is negative. And you have to kind of read that against kind of the glory of Rome to come and and deal with it. So other other kind of interpretations I was reading in preparation for this episode this week as have uh, lots of scholars have kind of twisted and turned themselves into knots to say no, the false dreams doesn't mean something negative. You um, uh, uh, there's no way that Virgil would have uh, you know tempered this praise of Augustus with such kind of a, a down note. But I am with Tarrant here that uh, you see that kind of tempering of the glory with the the down note throughout the first half of the book right the first half of the epic right. Hmm. So when we get around to it maybe we can kind of come back to this and kind of see what we think. But mm-hmm. that, is a, that is a scene that's always kind of troubled me is why does Aeneas lead by the gate of false dreams? and what on earth could that possibly mean?
0: Right? Yeah, yeah I don't really have an answer. I wonder if part of it is uh, part of the confusion is occasioned by the translation of falsa, where um, falsa insomnia maybe doesn't have to mean dreams that are not true mm. as in things that did not happen, but they are falsa in the sense that they lead us in a direction we didn't want to go or they, mm. they have some element of uh, deceit in them, not because they're not basically true, yeah. but because they lead to consequences we don't like.
1: Ah. I like that a lot. I like that a lot because I think that, that you can fall into that trap of just taking the easy cognate there. Oh, false, right. uh, untrue, mm-hmm. you know, didn't happen, but the, the range of the of, of that word is much bigger than that. Right, and yep. these,
0: these are things that happened, right? Each of these is a thing that happened.
1: Right, right, yeah. Um, exactly so all of the i believe i was reading all of the things that are mentioned as a as a prophecy right by virgil's time had already happened the one thing that has not happened or or doesn't happen is that he says the empire of augustus will reach all the way to the indus river right that's the only thing in the prophecy that hasn't happened
0: and never did and never did
1: happen right but everything else is is um it, it has come true and so that's what um some of the writers i was reading is saying well you know, how can they be false dreams if, from the point of view of Virgil and, and his audience, they've already happened? Yes. So, how, so it, is it referring to something else? Or is it, is it, kind of, it, is it um, arguing that everything that we see is kind of naturally glorious and triumphant mm. is that it, it carries with it its own cost? Yeah. That strikes me as very Virgilian.
0: Yeah. Well, falsus has the sense of disappointing, hollow, mm. right? Something that makes you hurt. Not not simply something that is the opposite of werum, right, right?
1: Right, 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 yeah. Just, okay,
0: just an idea.
1: All right, well, let's let's see where this goes. But we okay. got we're not there yet in, no, the, in no. the story. We got to back up. So, no, no. So where do we start here?
0: We start with uh, the first segment, which is on the concept of Roman reincarnation. Yeah, which has a uh, metempsychosis. Right, is yes. the Greek word. The soul lives afterward, or reincarnatio.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, and here, um here is showing. Uh, he's showing his son around to give him kind of a tour of the underworld. Yes. And so we're not quite up to kind of this grand um, array of great Romans to come, but he's kind of showing how the underworld works. Mm-hmm. Right? And so here in Elysium, under kind of the eternal sun and uh, this kind of Roman heaven, Enchises uh, shows that uh, it, it doesn't end here, but souls are, are cleansed, and uh, this is how they kind of come back into the land of the living.
0: They're laundered, as we said last time. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: exactly. So you want to read us a little Latin here? I
0: would love to. So this begins at line 723. Suscipidam qui seis at cord in a single appendit, princi biocai lacter dras composque lequentis, lucten lucentem quae globum lunai titani equastra, spiritus in tu salito tam quin artus, mens agitat molet magnose corporum isquet, in daminum peccadum quae vitae volantum. Et quae mar furt monstra sub aequa Nicely
1: done, as always. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Let me give the um, the Lombardo translation, um, which, uh, as as is our practice, uh, those lines, but also a bit more. Lombardo translates Anchises answered, and he revealed the mysteries one by one. First, heaven and earth, the sea's expanse, the moon's bright globe, the sun and stars are all sustained by a spirit within. Every part is infused with mind, which moves the whole the source of life for man and beast and all winged things and the monsters of the marmoreal deep a divine fire pulses within those seeds of life a celestial energy but it is slowed and dulled by mortal frames earthly bodies doomed to die and so men fear and desire sorrow and exult and shut in the shade of their prison houses cannot see the sky nor when the last gleam of life flickers out Are All the ills that flesh is heir to completely uprooted, but many corporeal taints remain, ingrained in the soul in myriad ways. And so we are disciplined and expiate our bygone sins. Some souls are hung to spread to the winds, others are cleansed under swirling waters or purged by fire. We each suffer our own ghosts. Then we are sent through spacious Elysium, and a few enjoy the blessed fields until the fullness of time removes the last trace of stain, leaving only the pure flame of ethereal spirit. All these when they have rolled the wheel of time through a thousand years, will be called by God in a great assembly to the river Lethe, so that they return to the vaulted world with no memory and may begin again to desire rebirth in a human body.
0: Hmm. That's very nicely read, and what a fantastic translation. It's a good,
1: great translation. I wanted, to make, I wanted to make kind of a couple of observations, and this, this kind of comes out of the fact that... Um, I'm teaching a world religions class right now. Okay. And it seems like, I mean, I want to get around, of course, kind of this notion of reincarnation and the drinking from Lethe. Um, But it strikes me as, it reminds me a lot of how, uh, like the nirvana experience of the Buddha is often described, is that when he has that enlightenment underneath the Bodhi tree, what what is he experiencing? Hmm. But it's kind of this notion that in a glance... He seems to kind of understand how everything is connected together, right? Um, in this almost indescribable way, and so uh, apparently, Kaisis has, has kind of this gift. Not only is he living in the blessed fields, but he also has a deep understanding how how all of this works, right? Or also, this is also how, like, the night journey of Muhammad is often described, where he's kind of taken up by the gods and he's in, uh, by God by Allah, and he shows shows um, Muhammad kind of. How all of life and heaven and eternity is, is kind of fits together. It hmm. seems strikes me as a as a as a uh, also kind of a nice corollary to what we see here. Hmm. So, um, but uh, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really have kind of an argument beyond that. it. Just kind of struck me as like, oh, I've I've seen this story before.
0: Right, right. Well, the connection to Plato, right? Of mm-hmm. course, is that there are many many theories, some more plausible than others, that um, Buddhists or Indian philosophers. Journeyed west and had contacts with the Greeks, yeah, and the gymnophysists, right the naked philosophers of India, and so there is a plausible but I mean ultimately probably not provable argument that Plato was directly inspired by this Eastern kind of religion right as for Muhammad i don't I don't know
1: where that comes from right it's even really striking about how um, if you look at the, um, the biographies. And the wisdom of Socrates, and compare that to Confucius. Right now, Confucius dates—he's um, much more kind of quasi-historical than Socrates is, but they roughly kind of from the same era, mm-hmm. you know, give or take a, a hundred years or so. And it's, it, again, it's it's almost the trope of the, the ugly philosopher who uh, kind of roots his wisdom in the fact that, you know, I am wise and that I claim to know nothing, that That's I, correct. I don't ultimately know anything. Right. It, it, how do you explain those kind of those grand seeming coincidences yeah. without kind of resorting to to an, an argument of there must be some kind of cross-cultural exchange going on
0: Right. Here. Well, yeah. a natural law argument covers it. I, in, I suppose. Not that many people would find that necessarily persuasive. But that these ideas are just common to humanity, mm. and they emerge in different places at different times. True. Yep. In very much the same form. This is C.S. Lewis's idea of the Tao, right? Yeah. Um, which yeah, I think, yeah. which I think is down today about four hundred points, if, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken.
1: <laughs> I always try to keep my eye on the Dow, but it's yeah, getting, I do it's too. Pressing, right. right, right. So, but yeah, this is. I mean, it's reflective of. um Well, I said I saw. I saw some Stoicism in there. Right? Oh, yes. They, each, each being carries the celestial gleam. Right. Well, right? the
0: Stoics, of course, claim that they are the only genuine descendants of Plato.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: And they probably have the best claim to that, certainly over the Epicureans. Yeah. But what Virgil is doing is adopting a basic Platonic psychology so that he can tell his story. Yeah. I think he probably also believes in it, but I don't know. Who Do you could, think so? Who can know?
1: Right. I mean, maybe an impossible question to ask. I
0: think so. Right. It's very, it's what? It's very... Fashionable, maybe it's very easy uh, to think that the the artist, the poet, does not believe the things he's saying. Yeah, but I find that um, the most compelling and persuasive works of art come from an individual who authentically believes in the truth of what he's saying.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, a question I often get with my with my myth students is when we talk about Odyssey Book Eleven, the Nequia. Is they ask that? Okay, to what degree did did the Greeks, you know, believe this? Right? right? Can we, how can we can we treat this like a, a holy scripture? And that's a really hard question to answer. I was reading um, a book from one of my favorite scholars of of, kind of ancient religion, Jan Bremer, hmm. and he made a he made a claim. He was talking about things like Book Six of the Aeneid and Book Eleven of the Odyssey. But then he says he says the likelihood that the mass the the majority of ancient Greeks and Romans believed in this is highly unlikely hmm. and they left it there without a footnote and i went okay why why
0: because he says so because
1: he says so right. this is
0: special pleading once again right
1: <laughs> yeah so i i don't know about that i mean in the way that you know that, that the, the greeks and the romans kind of revered homer it would actually strike me as as uh as very uh, yeah
0: the opposite the
1: opposite right they they, they would see these things as d- deeply influential in how right. they
0: saw this thing. but I mean, to the extent that they had any kind of sacred text it was homer right and I think that the, the general pattern of interpretation, Werner Jaeger, once again, is that Plato is the odd man out. He's the oddball, right? He's, yeah. he's the sore thumb. You can, you can uh, chart all of Greek history as before and after Plato. Right, right, right. Because he is the first one seriously, there was Xenophanes before, but he is the first one seriously to question the religion and mythology of, of Homer. Exactly, exactly. So yeah. to the, even though he greatly respects Homer... His um, dialogues are a direct challenge to the Homeric worldview.
1: Exactly. I mean, he will quote Homer. Right. You know, so- Socrates quotes Homer a lot, but mm-hmm. it's not just a, kind of a pure acceptance of Definitely of the, not. Because Homer said it, therefore it must be true.
0: It's an approval of the artistry and the beauty. Exactly. Not of the propositional content you might say
1: exactly right so there's a lot of kind of what seem to be kind of purely platonic aspects to this notion of of reincarnation and one of the things that's always struck me and always puzzled me too is that i mean it's a similar kind of story that we see in plato's myth of ur right Mm -hmm. yes from the republic right the the drinking from from lethe and also this idea that well who gets to be reincarnated it's the it's the best Mm -hmm. of the best and and so um that is often kind of strike me as, as in some ways, very unplatonic. It was, you know, uh, but Plato had, a, you know, a very jaded view on, on you know, the land of the living and humanity to See, some degree.
0: H- help me understand what you're right. saying. That Plato had a, a low view of um, political authority and those who were considered the elite.
1: Well, I mean, he certainly had a low view of democracy, right? right. And so, um, and so, I think he had a very low view of kind of the most of humanity. Mm. But at the same time, that if if we apply, if we say, if if the myth of Ur is reflective of Plato's true belief you mm. know did he did he hold these metempsychosis um, uh, beliefs who's being reborn back into the universe it was it would, it would seem to suggest that humanity would be getting better right because only the best of the best be, come back to us right and that's what enchises seems to be saying here now the best of the best are the Roman heroes the Roman heroes the great warriors mm. and and exclusively male it, mm. it also appears but that it strikes me as kind of oddly optimistic mm. I mean through the through the lens I mean if you accept what what the Greeks and the Romans considered to be, you know, "quote unquote" great. This is a very optimistic view of kind of where humanity is going, isn't it? Yes,
0: yes, I suppose it is. Okay. Uh,
1: yeah, and so I, I, I don't know, I don't know quite what to do with that.
0: Consistent improvement, you're saying? Yeah. Well, I think you're pointing to something that we won't be able to discuss in full until we get to the end of Book Twelve, which is the interpretation of the epic as a whole, mm-hmm. and you're touching on C.S. Lewis's interpretation, which. I think we'll foreshadow here just so we don't tease the audience endlessly okay and he says in his preface to uh, Paradise Lost that after Virgil the only direction in which epic could go is religious you know mm. we're, we're done with the personal epic of Homer it's they're basically personal epics yeah then Virgil has the epic of national destiny right so not the individual. But now we're all in this together, right? And yeah. that's that's why Aeneas represents, not himself, but he is the Roman. Right. What's left for the development of Epic? And so uh, Lewis says, the only avenue left for the development of Epic is a fully religious Epic. And that's what uh, John Milton does with Paradise Lost. Right.
1: Or, or And uh, Dante too, right? Yes. Yeah, right. Um, Although
0: he seems to suggest, if I remember correctly, that Dante is still trying to tap into... The Virgilian mode, oh, okay. of a kind of national destiny.
1: Excellent. I'm not familiar with that with that um, part of of Lewis's yeah uh, uh, work, I'm, but that sounds fascinating.
0: Well, we should maybe just discuss it and in some episode, yeah. because it's a very astute, I would say, right, uh, read of the epic tradition.
1: Excellent. So, um, in that same article from the 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 opening quote, Tarrant, right? Uh, he addresses kind of this issue of kind of well, you know, what is Virgil borrowing from here? Mm-hmm. You know, what what's the philosophy behind it? And he, and and he writes, it would be wrong to suggest that the outlook of the Aeneid is consistently platonic any more than it is consistently stoic or Epicurean. Instead, Virgil seems to have found Plato's view of the physical world as a mere shadow of a purer world, a useful structure of thought by which to express his own sense of the evanescence of mortal aspirations. This awareness, however, coexists with an equally strong feeling that the mission of Aeneas will have a permanent and beneficent influence on human history. In the passage under discussion, Aeneas appears as a human being with all of man's tragic limitations. Elsewhere, particularly in Book 8, the founder of Rome assumes a nearly divine stature. Hmm. So he's suggesting here that um, he will use, uh, he kind of, he cherry picks. Yes. Right, he's kind of using kind of a platonic worldview to kind of paint a particular picture. Yeah,
0: that Virgil doesn't really believe in this in any profound sense. Right. But like you just said, he's using it to... Carry across the ideas that he wants to express, right?
1: And so it's not; it would be it would be wrong. Well, I think Terence argued it would be wrong to kind of look at this this uh, section of Book Six and say, "Oh, he's making a Platonic argument." Mm-hmm. He's not; he's using a Platonic sheen to tell I a, see. a particular story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That
0: seems persuasive. Okay. I think that in the modern conversation. Platonism is often grossly misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Many people believe that Plato thought that the body is inherently evil. Right. Uh, the expression "soma sema," right, that the body is a tomb. Mm-hmm. Soma sema. Yes. Uh, but I think that's more of a Manichaean view, and a Gnostic view. And uh, in the you know first 300 years after Christ, the Platonists and the Gnostics were as antagonistic as the Christians and the Gnostics. Right. Because the the Platonists did not think that the body was pure evil. They just believed it was the locus of all of the bad things that are happening to mm. the soul. Right, right, right. Right. So, yeah, it is a bad state for a soul to be trapped in a body. But just because there are contaminations contemporaneous with that condition. And if you could just be free from the body, you'd be free from the contaminations that go along with it. Yeah. It's not that it's inherently wicked.
1: Right. But that's certainly. I mean, I've I've heard that. Um, oh, over good, and over. liberally stated uh, so many times. Oh right? yeah. Right. And yeah, you have to take into account too is that um, by the time you get to the Gnostics and then you have what you know what's called Middle Platonism, right. you know, Neo Platonism. Right. You're hundreds of years away from the man himself. Yes. Right? Eight hundred. And and um, practically, you do yourself a disservice if, disservice if you're not treating each of those things as kind of unique with their own particular kind Correct. of thing, right. But to boil it down to say, well, this is what Plato believed, mm-hmm. um,
0: is simplistic.
1: Is simplistic. Yep. Good point. All right. Now we got some. Um, we got some future Romans. All right. Coming well, from the point of view of 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 Aeneas, these the are the parade. The parade. Right. Are you ready for a parade? No,
0: not really. No? <laughs> The the streamers and the screamers and the the flying candy and the balloons and...
1: And the bands. Yes. What's there not to hate? Right. Exactly. Politicians handing out uh, um, slips of paper. Vote, Vote for me. Yeah, no thanks. Right. Yeah. So... Um, we're, maybe, co-
0: we're coming up on parade time, too, right? Are the, we? Uh, we have a general election uh, oh, yeah. next week. Next week, that's right. And uh, I think probably this episode will come out on the very day of. That's right. Are we going to be topical?
1: No, I think no. We'll, let's keep politics out of let's it. Let's rise that's above it. all right.
0: the hullabaloo.
1: Exactly. Like, like I, like I hate it when... When my favorite musician, um, well, you know, from like from the stage, will start pontificating about the cap, right. the capital gains t- tax, you know, right. just play play the song, <laughs> right? So let's not be those guys. You're not
0: suggesting we're someone's <laughs> favorite musician, are you? Wait,
1: we, we I think I think for some people we are their favorite podcast. All right. Yes, I think uh, we've heard as much. Right. We were
0: very popular in Buffalo.
1: We're huge in Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, I just
0: learned this week that someone from Buffalo is called a Buffalonian. Really? Did you know that? No, a Buffalonian. A Buffalonian.
1: Man. We are Michiganders.
0: That's correct. That's a pretty unique one. A couple slices of rye and a little mustard. You got a sandwich there.
1: <laughs> a, a Buffalonian? That's right. <laughs> uh, so here comes the parade from the Valley of Souls. Right, right. So um, the first one that shows up is, uh, is Silvius, which is Aeneas' last son with Lavinia. Hmm.
0: Right. So, so he's going to be born pretty soon. Yeah. Who is Lavinia, Jeff? You got to fill in the listener here.
1: Right. So we'll get to um, probably in next week's uh, the episode after this one, we'll be talking about book seven, right? And so uh, Aeneas and the crew, they make their way uh, up the boot of Italy and ultimately come to the site where Rome will, want, will, will soon be. And they meet um, Latinus, the King Latinus, mm-hmm. and his daughter Lavinia. Um,
0: and Latinus, of course, is the cult founder of the Latins, yes. right? Which is a tribe, a sub-tribe on the Italian peninsula that Aeneas and the Trojans will absorb.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that guy, Latinus, he, he, is, he is relaxed, like, you like him? It, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I like him, but it's, you know, the, the strange group of people comes and they say, hey, can we have some of your territory to build a city? Sure.
0: Right. And by the way, our leader's going to marry your daughter right. who's already engaged to this other guy, Turnus, <laughs> right. that you spent a lot of time with at the football game and so forth. Exactly. Right. Go for it. Right. Now,
1: granted, uh, he's received an oracle that basically says this is how it's going to go. And mm. so he says, who am I to fight destiny? And so he just has to have it. But he's, he's very welcoming of this strange group of people showing up in these boats. It's partly to be a foil to his wife. Wait. Well, yes. Amata. Right. Or Lovey, Lovey,
0: Exactly. That's what her name means. And she's
1: anything but. Yeah, exactly. She becomes a kind of a fury incarnate, right? That's correct.
0: Right. Possessed by Electo. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We are getting ahead
1: of ourselves. So Lavinia is ultimately who Aeneas will will marry. His
0: third wife, so to speak. Exactly. After Creusa and then the the not romance with Dido. Dido. Lavinia is uh, where it's at. Right. And so they have
1: a a son, Silvius. Um, Mm -hmm. He'd be, um, well... Foresty, tree yeah. guy. Yeah, forest. Forest. There we right. go.
0: <laughs> Conquer Italy, Silvius. Conquer Italy. Yes. That's supposed to be like the run forest run.
1: Oh, there we go. I just I,
0: didn't do it with a
1: with with a, a proper uh, accent. Run forest <laughs> run. <laughs> um, so lots of of uh, uh, of uh, people coming forward. That uh, Encycis is stressing that this is. Um, kind of Trojan blood mixed with indigenous uh, uh, Italian blood. And um, Silvius is going to establish a, a line of uh, kings that will rule at Alba Longa. Alba Longa. Yeah.
0: The White Hills of Alba Longa, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I believe, I'm going to get my geography off here and better check during the break. I believe northeast of Rome are the hills of the White Hills of Alba Longa. Is that where they
1: are? I can't even picture
0: Better it. check. Yeah. But this was the legendary home of Rome's first kings before the site got moved to the banks of the Tiber, right. with Romulus and Remus. Yes,
1: exactly. So that's that. all of that is to is to come. But it struck me too, I think that was, I was also talking in my myth class today about, like the like myths of autochthony. Mm-hmm. And so in these stories... You're going
0: to define some terms here. Well, autochthony? Autochthony,
1: like, like from the ground itself. Right. Right? So the
0: Greek terms, kthonos, which is yes. which is earth, and atos, self. Self, so springing from the very ground.
1: Right, and so how these stories were often told to kind of legitimize claims to land, mm-hmm. right? So we're talk- I was talking about, you know, so Cadmus comes from Mesopotamia over to found Thebes, but ultimately it's the Spartoi, it's these, yes. these, the, the dragon teeth that grow into the, into the men.
0: The sown ones that come up directly from the soil.
1: Right, and so um, those become the ancestral um, uh, families of, of, of Thebes, right? It doesn't yeah. come from Cadmus.
0: No, and of course in Athens we have Kekrops. Right. The snake guy who slithers out of the very ground of Athens. And so they can say, look, we've always been here. always been here. It's the ultimate squatter's rights.
1: Exactly. Right. So not only have we always been here, but we're made up of the stuff, the very soil and rock of the place. That's right. Right. So
0: it's like when you're sitting in your rumpus room.
1: Oh, yeah. You got a rumpus room? I I wish I had a rumpus room. You need a rumpus room, Winkle. I know.
0: Use some of the proceeds from this fabulously profitable podcast to make yourself a rumpus room.
1: Now, do you have a rumpus room? I remember uh, your previous house you had one. Oh, it was a rumpus room. Yeah, but do you have one now? Mm,
0: I have a rumpus sunroom. <laughs> <laughs> a li- a, th- a three-season rumpus room. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little incongruous. But when when in, when incongruous is in session, it's a uh, it's comfortable enough, but Got as you. I was saying, Please. when you're in your rumpus room yeah. and you're parked on the you know the most favorable spot for watching the game and yep. eating your snacks, yes. you need to use this as a justification for why you shouldn't have to move ah. when one of the children come along and say, "Dad, can I sit there? I want to do exit no I'm autochthonous uh,
1: yes oh I'm, I'm using I've that.
0: established my spot here on the couch. my <laughs> territory is clearly marked. <laughs> It's autochthonous. I
1: love it. I love it. So I, I see a bit of that here where, um, you know, it would be a very different story if Virgil would say, Here come the Trojans. They just kind of carve out their territory. They they, they kill all the enemies and it just becomes kind of a, a, a Trojan kingdom. Yes. But no, it's very important that they mix their blood with the locals.
0: Yes. Virgil is sophisticated, right? Mm-hmm. He's wise. He knows that the story can only succeed if it has these elements.
1: Right. And so I think all of this is. is um, it, the I'm all I'm going to read a bit from the Lombardo translation, but it it, it reminded me of um, like the beginning of the of the book of Matthew, mm-hmm. where um, the kind of the argument for why and who Jesus is who he is is we can kind of connect this back to uh, oh yes back through the ge- the genealogies yes right?
0: right all the way to Abraham right
1: yep. connect, connect them and and through David and mm-hmm. so it kind of legitimizes kind of the claim that Jesus is Messiah right right
0: and in Luke all the way back to Adam
1: right 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 and so here is um. A similar kind, I think, argument being made is that we're going to connect Augustus all the way back to these these Trojan ancestors and, and these indigenous Italians.
0: That's correct. Who will eventually rule first at Alba Longa, Right. Which, like the Buffalonian, you put it on some wheat, you know, with a little mayo... The Alba Longa. Oh, man. You're good to go. Oh,
1: man. You're making me hungry, right? I can't <laughs> tell you the last time I had a Buffalonian.
0: Oh, <laughs> can good you, stuff. Can you read us a little bit yes. here of the uh, Lombardo?
1: Right. And uh, just to, um, to let the listener know, these, these uh, kind of parades of ancestors are, it's very long. We can only kind of touch upon uh, a, a little bit at a time. Um, and we can't cover it all. But here, um, Anchises says Next comes Prokos, uh, pride of our race, then Capis and Numitor, and then your avatar, Aeneas Silvius, equal to you in piety and arms. If ever he succeeds to Alba's throne, look at these young men, their strength, their brows shaded with civic oak. They will build for you Nomentum, Gabii, and the town of Fidena. They will crown Colatia's hills with towers, and will found P- Palmetii and Inuus. Bola and Cora, famous names someday, now places without names. And then a son of Mars will support his grandsire, Romulus, born to Ilia from the line of Asaricus. Mm. So we get Romulus coming there. Yes, and then, there he is. Right? The founder of Rome itself.
0: Yes, born to Ilia, who's also named Rea Silva, goddess okay. of the forest, who slept with Mars and gave birth to the twins.
1: Right. And there, too, we have kind of a mixture between... Kind of indigenous, uh, kind of Italian folk belief, and, that's right. and, and Greek, uh, Romanized Greek gods. Absolutely, yeah? and it's all by design.
0: Mars as Ares.
1: Yeah, and then, um, again, skipping over a, a number of things, Virgil kind of takes the um, the, the parade up to his own day.
0: Yes, and, and Jeff, if I may. Yes. Speaking of parades in our own day. Yeah. It's time for the ads.
1: This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Ratio Coffee started by the inimitable Mark Helwig, way out there in Portland, Oregon. Is he still out there? Absolutely, he That's, is. Right. they know coffee out there. They do. Right. And he has created these wonderful, beautiful machines, um, the Ratio 6 and the Ratio 8, which um, I love. I have in my own house. I've got I'm working with the 8 right now. Yes. Perfect. Sleek. Sleek. Yep. Yeah. Gorgeous. Beautiful. Gorgeous. Uh, delivers a perfect cup of coffee. Every single morning.
0: Yeah, it's got. Uh, it's made out of, uh, what, aircraft-grade aluminum? Right? Yes. Lands on your countertop like a 737? It
1: does. It kind of hovers In- and settles. Incredible. Yeah.
0: yeah. And you might be asking, Jeff, mm-hmm. I think you are, what's the deal with the bloom phase? What is
1: the deal with the bloom phase? Well, let me
0: read to you a little bit from the racialcoffee.com blog. Okay. Because they're going to explain the bloom phase. Please. All right. The reason this release of CO2 is problematic... This is, this is the off-gassing, yeah. may not be immediately apparent. It all comes down to how we extract flavor out of coffee. When we pour water over coffee grounds, it soaks into them slowly, but surely pulls all the different flavor components out of the coffee. In order to get good results, it's important to make sure that this happens relatively uniformly for the entire bed of grounds. Hmm. This is, for instance, part of why the ratio's wide shower screen is so useful. Do you like a wide
1: shower screen? I do. I like it. If I have to choose between wider and narrow. I, I choose wide. With a Fibonacci head? Oh, of course. So what does that do
0: exactly? Well, the trouble occurs when that released CO2 starts forming bubbles and cavities within the bed of grounds. That's a problem, apparently. Yeah. So are you with us, listener? You see, you've got the bed of grounds. Mm-hmm. You've got the water, hot water dripping down into it, right, in your coffee maker. But what happens? Well, the CO2, that's what's chemical terms for- Carbon dioxide? No, that's still chemical terms. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Bubbly fizzly. Okay, bubbly fizzly. For the bubbly fizzly, when it starts getting into the bed of grounds, it gets trapped there, and the off-gassing doesn't occur. So instead of the water uniformly flowing through and between all those little bits, it gets diverted by the bubbles and cavities. That means there are large areas where the grounds aren't having all their flavor extracted.
1: It sounds fascinating. I am, You're not I'll, with me, are well, you? Well, <laughs> I, I I buy it. I didn't do. I mean, I haven't taken chemistry since uh, since I was a junior in high school, yeah, but, but and you, I did not do well. Okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but
1: it, it sounds very impressive. And yeah,
0: but yeah. but you can look at your nice cone where the coffee comes down in from the Fibonacci head. The water comes down in. Oh yeah. You know what's going on in there? Now I do. Yeah. None of the CO2 is getting trapped in the bubbles and cavities. And preventing all of the flavor from being extracted from your coffee.
1: So it's very important to getting yes. that that wonderful flavorful uh,
0: brew every morning. That's correct. If there's no off gassing, what is it that gets stuck in there?
1: The what? I, I'm not following you. What? It begins the... with brackish and ends with tang. Oh, the brackish tang. That's exactly. Oh man, where have I been? <laughs> right. So should l- we redo this whole? Ad? No, no, no. We're good. It's good. We're, we're going. The, the, the the audience is following us. All right. right, exactly. They were probably screaming brackish tang before I even stumbled over. Following
0: them. us into oblivion. Yeah.
1: Right. So, listeners, if you're interested, go to ratiocoffee.com. Um, look at the, the wide selections there, the beautiful machines, the six, the eight. Find the ones you want. Um, type in this coupon code, A N C O 7 B, and that will get you 15% off whatever machine you choose. Yeah, the B stands for uh, Brackish Tang. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, or, or lack of. No, right? no. Okay.
0: This episode of Ad Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, with offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Indianapolis, Indiana, has been providing to a wide audience of readers classics for 50 years now. Jeff, we're nearing the end of the 50th year golden anniversary of Hackett. We are. How do you feel about that?
1: I I feel a little sad because it's been a great year. But I look forward to many more years of of, uh, doing business and providing these wonderful texts. Yes, and
0: I'd like to just take a little moment to talk about what's on the philosophy portion of their website. What are you finding? Well, here are some of the uh, wonderful resources that the listener can acquire. A Companion to Plato's Republic by Nicholas White. A step-by-step, passage-by-passage analysis of the complete republic. Wow. So you want to get the allegory of the cave that we've been talking about here Mm -hmm. with Mumford and Sons. Yeah. You want to get an explanation of the myth of Ur. It's all here. The alleged communism in the way that uh, Plato structures his republic with the guards and the communal marriage and so forth, it's all here analyzed by White.
1: If I wanted to become a philosopher king, could I find maybe a how-to in there? Yes, there's an
0: instruction manual in the back.
1: Excellent. Yes. Yes.
0: Also on the page by David Friedlander, Friedrich Schleiermacher, and Wilhelm Abraham Teller, a debate on Jewish emancipation and Christian theology in Old Berlin. So it's not just classics. It's not just classics. Also, a dialogue on personal identity and immortality by John Perry. Disquisition on Government by John Calhoun, a wide array of philosophical titles. If that's your interest,
1: yeah. So Hackett um, covers all corners. Right? That's right. So I mean, we're very interested, given our, our podcast interested in their classical offerings and um, a lot of the translations. Most of the translations you hear on the on the uh, on the podcast are from Hackett volumes, including uh, Mr. Lombardo's translation of the of the Aeneid.
0: Yes, we used him also for the Metamorphoses, right. which we keep coming back to, but they have the Ambrose translation as
1: well. Mm-hmm. And the Cresac, also another translation mm-hmm. of the of the Aeneid. So all kinds of stuff out there. I love their volumes. I'm not gonna go into kind of how I love, uh, how attractive the volumes are, but um, they're good looking books. Yes, they are. So,
0: uh, and uh, very expensive, right?
1: No, no, very, very affordable, right? So you're getting a high quality product, that is um, easy on the wall, especially when it comes to the the, I mean, the crime of the cost of, of textbooks for, mm-hmm. for students these days. Heck, it should be a, a go to for every student out there, kind of studying in these in these arenas.
0: That's yeah. why you no longer study chemistry.
1: That's right. It's too expensive. Way too expensive. Those hardcover books. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Door stoppers.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So if you want to listener score yourself some of these wonderful books at a good price, mm-hmm. you want to get twenty percent off that great coupon and free, free shipping. shipping. You need to go to hackettpublishing.com, H A C K E T T, pick out what you like, drop them in your little grocery satchel, and what's the code, Jeff? AN2022. Check it out. You won't regret it.
1: All right, Dave. So as we get back into it, um, in this line of of Romans to come, uh, Virgil takes it down to his own day and starts uh, naming uh, people very familiar mm. uh, for to uh, first century BC Romans. Yes, right? and
0: anyone who's studied Roman history.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah. how about a little Latin here? You I'd love to. Read yes. Some? Yeah.
0: Here we go. This is line 788. Huc geminas nunc flectacies hangaspic agentem. Roman nos quatu o caesaret omnis iuli. Progenies magnum Caeli venturdres abaxem. Hic vir hic est tibi quem Saipius audis. Augustus Caisar di Vigenes aurdre condet, Saecula quirdr sus lati ordre ignata per arva. Saturno quondam superet garamantas et indos. Proferet imperium jacet extra sideretelus. Extra ni solis quavias ubi atlas. axumero torquet Ardentibus aptum. Very nice. Thank you.
1: I love the I love the heek weir. This guy. Yeah, right here. This is the one. <laughs> this is the guy. queer. He guest. Yeah. This is
0: he. This right here. And I also loved in seven uh, seven eighty nine the second line. Mm-hmm. Uh, those of you who are the you know the Latin literati, I'm I'm flattering you here. If you're listening carefully, you heard what's called a spondaic line. The last two feet of that line are omnisuli. Two spondees. Does
1: that add like a a kind of a solemnity? Yes, it does. yeah. Yeah.
0: It's when the parade goes by Right, you know you're dealing with elephants, right, and not kids on bicycles with training wheels, that's right, because right? right. the, <laughs> the pace of the whole thing slows down.
1: So this is the float everyone's been waiting for. Exactly. Right. This is the
0: Star Wars float with the trapdoor in the bottom and, you know, everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Omnis iuli, that's yeah. a spondaic line. There aren't a lot of them in the Aeneid, mm-hmm. but they always indicate this solemnity and grandeur, like right. you're saying.
1: right. All right, so Lombardo's translation, once again, says, Now turn your gaze here and let it rest upon your family of Romans. Here is Caesar, and here are all the descendants of Julius, destined to come under heaven's great dome. And here is the man promised to you, Augustus Caesar, born of the gods, who will establish again a golden age in the fields of Latium, once ruled by Saturn, and will expand his dominion beyond the Indus and the Garamantes." Beyond our familiar stars, beyond the yearly path of the sun, to the land where Atlas turns the star-studded sphere on his shoulders. Yes, that's great. It is. It's great. Now, this is uh, the the closest that I think that Virgil uh, comes to being just kind of purely sycophantic. Unless he really believes it. Well, I guess so. I guess maybe I'm I'm a little bit too cynical. You're too cynical. cynical, Right, right? you're
0: kind of jaded. So I, I don't know ultimately how best to interpret Virgil's attitude to Augustus. I think it is one of the mysteries that will survive. You know, to the end of time, yeah. I can say that uh, really until the 20th century, I don't think anyone believed that Virgil was anything but um, genuinely an admirer hmm. of Augustus. Yeah. And I think the plausibility of the argument rests upon the fact that it's at the end of three generations of civil war. Right. you got Marius and Sulla back in the 90s and 80s. you got the first triumvirate. You've got the second triumvirate when Augustus finally defeats uh, Mark Antony, no more war, right. no more Romans killing themselves, right. right? killing one another. So the Pax Augusta, it's pretty appealing.
1: Sure, right. Yeah, the hope for something much, much better um, had to be very much alive, right? Correct. Exactly. So yeah, I'll, I'll buy that. Okay. Right. And as we were saying early in the episode is that um, the only thing that hasn't happened, and, and as we know from history, does not happen, is that he will extend his rule all the way to the Indus. Right, past the Indus. I'm not sure what the Garamantes, is. Is that a river out there? I'm, I I don't know off the top of my head.
0: I didn't know off the top of my head either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked it up, and the Garamantes is in Northwest Africa. Oh, okay. So it's in the Sahara, modern-day Libya, not quite as far west as Carthage, but it represents, as we've said before on the podcast, you know, when we were kids, that distant place was Timbuktu, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, right, right. Or maybe somewhere in Australia. You know, you knew it was real, but you thought it was kind of mythical because you could never go there and, you, you know, couldn't find pictures like you can today. Exactly. So.
1: Reminds me of the, the mythical place of Tarnation. Really? Like, like like what what, what where in, where in tarnation did that come from? Yeah. Exactly. Interesting.
0: Where where exactly is Tarnation? I have is, no is, idea. Is tarnation. No, <laughs> I don't know or what's the capital of Tarnation? <laughs> I have no idea. Hmm.
1: Right. So yeah, so that's the the one part of the of the grand prophecy that you know hasn't and, and won't come true.
0: No, I think if I'm not mistaken the the greatest physical extent of Roman Empire was under uh, Trajan, yes, the guy with the large uh, pectoral muscles, yes, 117 A.D. If I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. right, right before Hadrian, and so it went as far east as uh, the Tigris and Euphrates, Mm -hmm. uh, west all the way to where. Somewhere in, in Britain, right?
1: In Britain, yeah. Well, you know, Hadrian built his wall. Even Just Hadrian, after that. Hadrian says, I'm not dealing with the Scots. No, I can't let's, do that. Let's keep them out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and west all the way to the Mediterranean, yeah. right? And the the legends that the Romans sailed to the Canary Islands and oh, yeah. uh, maybe even further west. I don't buy it, but no. uh, possible. yeah. Yeah. And then in the south, right, the, the sands of the Libyan desert. But he never made it to the Indus River. Who did make it to the Indus River, and why is that so important?
1: Well, uh, um, Alex, Alexander the Great made That's it there. That's correct. And, uh, the, I mean, the, the tradition is that his men finally told him, enough.
0: I'm not going any further. Go further. But that set the gold standard for Eastern expansion. Right. And right. this is why all the Roman generals wanted that so much. Right. Exactly. So There's they like, could compare themselves. Right.
1: There's the wonderful story about Caesar. Uh, I forget how, how old he was, but like thinking about, man, I'm in my... I'm in my like 30s now. Like I'm, I'm older than Alexander was when he died. Look, what have I done? I've accomplished nothing. Right. He said, "I don't even have my own podcast." <laughs> but he used that to motivate himself, yes. right, to, to to greater to greater things. Right. right. So, um, it, it struck me too is that in, in some in some ways the the not maybe a little bit in, in this passage, but elsewhere, uh, the language that Virgil uses to describe the golden age Augustus is very much like the blessed fields in the underworld. Oh, yes. And so the, I think we're meant to see kind of the one as kind of the mirror image of the other. Right. And so Augustus is bringing kind of a heaven on earth to us. Mm. Um, and uh, we're getting, Aeneas gets a little taste of that just by hanging out with his dad in Elysium.
0: So are we going to talk about, well said, are we going to talk about this uh, this all-star roster of Roman greats? Oh, I think we have to. OK.
1: Right. So uh, he mentions uh, also uh, figures like Cato, uh, the Gracchi, the, the, the Scipios. And, and all the while, kind of making sure that it's clear that they all trace their lineage back to kind of Roman blood. Yes. Right. And how many Catos do we have? Oh, well, there's at least at least two uh, two Catos. Yeah. Right? There's
0: Cato the Elder, right? Cato right. uh, Censorius, the guy that supposedly hated Greek literature but read it and wrote it himself. Yeah. And uh, he wrote the works on agriculture and so forth. And then Cato the Younger, Uta uh, who killed himself, right? Right. During the Civil War.
1: Yeah. Right. So all of those are mentioned. Um, and then it shifts to uh, Marcellus. But, but before we get to Marcellus, we got to deal with some very famous lines which talk about um, what makes the Romans different from the Greeks, right?
0: Yes, correct. And this takes up at around 848, uh, actually 847. So here is Anchises to Aeneas. And he's talking about these are the things that other people will do, right? Mm-hmm. But Roman, this will be your skills or your arts. So I'd like to read a little bit of the the Latin, and then we can bring in Lombardo on that. Please. Okay. Yep. So it goes mm-hmm. excudent ali ira, credequidem we de marmora wultus, ordra bunt causas melius descri radiet, sergentia cidera decant, tu imperio papulos. Romana memento, hai tiberunt artes paci quim ponere morem parcara subiectis et de bellara superbos. All right. And maybe that last line is the most famous, right? Uh, this will be your arts. These will be your skills, O Roman. Remember, impose the habit or the custom of peace, spare the downtrodden, and crush or grind the haughty or the arrogant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, it's it's interesting because Virgil is is both tapping into the way the Romans viewed themselves, their self-identity, and he's also kind of setting the pattern for how they ought to view themselves.
1: Ah, yes. So, yeah.
0: so the lines that come before this talk about drawing uh, living faces out of the marble, right? was wultus. Uh, others will argue uh, law cases better, and they will trace the movements of the heavens uh, with a compass, and they will name the rising stars. So what do we have here? We've got art and science and oratory. And the Romans always had this sense of inferiority yes. with respect to the Greeks. Right, 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 right. And uh, I kind of understand it. I mean, I can, I can kind of agree that artistically, culturally... The Romans are inferior. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But what do you think about that claim?
1: No, I, I would I would agree with that as well. But I think uh, Virgil's trying to balance it out a little bit here. I mean, he yes. he ends with kind of a. Um, I think Virgil's already already seems to be aware that um, that uh, the Roman people have a reputation of being kind of military uh, imperial brutes. Yes, right, to some degree. Uh, a, a little slow witted. Yes, exactly right. Uh, um, and so here he's he. I mean, the, those last lines are very military themes. Yes. Right? Oh, yes. You know? um, con- you know,
0: Law and order. Right. A kind of bureaucracy almost. But he
1: adds the you know the the arts and the sciences as well as theirs. You know, you're called to be learned as well. hmm So I think he's countering but you, that, that. But you're
0: going to learn it from other people. You're, yeah. not, you're not going to be original in this. I mean, that's true. You're that's not true. going to be
1: creative in this. Right.
0: Right. Uh, so, have you ever read any of Seneca's tragedies?
1: Yes. And I did not really enjoy them all that much. (laughs) No, Hardly anybody
0: does. Poor Seneca, right? So for each of the main genres of literature, the Romans would say, yeah, we got one of those. Right. Right. So Virgil's whole project is, I'm going to be the Roman Homer, Mm -hmm. right? And Cicero said, you got Plato. I can do that. Yeah. You got Demosthenes. I can do that. Yeah. And so who is Livy's doppelganger?
1: Uh, Thucydides?
0: Yeah, probably. Or Herodotus. Herodotus yeah. Yeah. And you got Sallust matched up with Thucydides. So they're really trying hard to show uh, that we're not culturally inferior. Right. But they could never do it. It, it seems like Horus is the only one who was really honest about uh, roman inferiority right 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 in, but where well, they the do sense. they do
1: express their their originalities in the things that they could build and organize that's correct right? they're the great engineers the great builders yeah
0: the arch and the use of concrete and mm-hmm. all that so these lines are so important because this is what you know virgil is talking about doing spare the downtrodden but grind the haughty into a pulp yeah <laughs> exactly yeah yeah
1: so marcellus marcellus right so um uh, Marcellus was a nephew of Augustus who tragically died young at age uh, twenty-one or so, or nineteen. Yes, I think that's right. Um, uh, died in in uh, twenty-three BC, which which gives us a a nice uh, helps us kind of uh, uh, date the writing yeah. of the Aeneid, right? A terminus. Yep. It also
0: um, is suspected. Many scholars believe that the boy, the puer, of Eclogue Four is Marcellus.
1: Right. 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 Yeah. Yep. Um. So. Um, from Lombardo's translation, and tears welling up in his eyes. Son, do not seek your people's great grief. Fate will permit him on earth a brief while, but not for long. Gods above, you thought Rome would be too powerful had your gift endured. What lamentation of the brave will hang over the field of Mars, O oh, River Tiber? What a funeral you will see, as you glide past his new tomb. No boy bred of Troy will ever raise the hope of his Latin forefathers so high, nor the land of Romulus ever be so proud of any of its sons. Oh, lament his devotion, lament his pristine honor. And his sword arm invincible in war. No enemy would have faced him unscathed, whether he fought on foot or dug his spurs into the flanks of a foaming stallion. If only you could shatter fate, poor boy, you will be Marcellus. Let me strew armfuls of lilies and scatter purple blossoms, hollow rites to honor my descendant's shade. Mm. So. Um, There's a lot of pathos in a there. A lot of
0: pathos. Just suffused with pathos. Right.
1: And in Kyces, you know, who the, Marcellus lives you know, centuries after him. He's all choked up by this. Right. Um, but this brings us back to, you know, kind of the, the beginning of the episode, this kind of this question of, and we're getting to the kind of the gate of false dreams. Um, but why does Virgil, after all this parade of, of glory, builds to the climax of Augustus in this golden age, but then he ends with the the death of Marcellus in this really sad, haunting note. Mm-hmm. What is he up to?
0: I can think of two possible options. Please. One is uh, in line with Terence's interpretation that the the death and the misery and the the counter argument the revisionist idea is always present no matter how much glory and celebration there is
1: hmm. mm-hmm.
0: and the second reason is that this is something that virgil wrote specifically for his immediate audience that the popularity and the expectations placed on marcellus and you know the hopes for his future yeah that these were things that were very live and significant for the contemporary audience but that we don't really have an idea of. Yeah. So it seems out of place because we don't have enough information. We don't true. have enough context. I don't know which of those two interpretations, or maybe a third, is the more plausible.
1: I think those. I mean, I think the two you offered could uh, could coexist, right? They don't have to be. They don't have to be both.
0: No, that's true. Right. So you don't can, have to be either. You mean?
1: That's what I mean. Um, but I think they. Um, you can kind of almost see kind of this encomium of of Marcellus as almost a little kind of set piece mm-hmm. but I think that's a good point It's it's, uh, it's I think it's always too, it, too important to try to remember who was the original audience of this you know, who is Virgil writing for in this immediate sense and that that death of Marcellus would have been um, a huge deal yeah uh, for the people of Rome at the time
0: mm-hmm. a great blow
1: yep. So we got to get to these gates of uh, yes. of, of sleep, these the, the false dreams here. Right. Um, we got to get uh we got to get Aeneas out of this place.
0: Yes, out of the catabasis. Mm-hmm. Leave the food court, take the escalator up, exit the doors, out into the bright sunlight. Yep. Find his Toyota Prius. Yeah. And drive on and, to
1: and drive off. That's
0: right. Yep. So he can make war.
1: Right. So um, how about a little bit more Latin here before we I'm go? happy to
0: do a lot more okay, Latin. I was getting a little bit of a vibe of you're overdoing it. Well, during, I'm, the I'm, last a, I'm, one. I'm
1: always worried. Are we getting up against the clock here? Oh, so I just, oh. I just, I don't. And sometimes, you know, do we, do, do should we cut a little bit of Latin right. so, so we can get to the end? Never. Never.
0: Never cut the Latin. All right. Read it. I, I'll just read a few. We'll stop with the elephant or maybe just after. Okay. Sund somni portai fertur. That's line 893. So this is a long book. We're right near the end. Cornea quaver exitus umbris, condenti perfecta, ni tains elefanto, sed falsad calum insomnia manes.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. We got the insomnia there and the
1: elephant. All right.
0: Leaning on an elephant.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Um, all right, Lombardo, one last time. And so they wandered every region of the wide airy plain, surveying it all it contained. When Anchises had led his son through every detail and inflamed his soul with longing for the glory that was to come, he told him of the wars he next must wage. So there again, it's kind of the sweetness uh, followed by the bitter, right? Of the Laurentine people in Latinus's town and how to face or flee each waiting peril. There are two gates of sleep. One, they say, is horn and offers easy exit for true shades. The other is finished with glimmering ivory, but through it the spirits send false dreams to the world above. Anchises escorted his son as he talked and then sent him with the sibyl through the gate of ivory. Aeneas made his way to the ships, rejoined his men, and sailed along to the coast to Caedus' harbor. They cast anchor from the prow; the sterns faced the shore. Very nice. Thus ends Book Six. Yes, that's yep.
0: it. That's the end. So the elephant that I mentioned, yeah, of course, that's the glimmering ivory. Ivory, yeah. yeah.
1: But I, I really li- one of the things I like about um, about Virgil is that he doesn't, he drops these kind of mini bombshells right. and doesn't spoon feed you any kind of answer, right? So, no. he tells us that the gate of ivory is, is the gate of fall streams, and then he says Aeneas goes through it, and that's it. That's correct. Right. He does. He leaves it to the, to the audience to say, wait, what?
0: Yes. right. Well, art consists in what you don't say, mm-hmm. right? The best writing, it seems to me, even the best movies, if we're going to consider them artistry, yeah. we can argue that out later are the ones that just suggest things, but they don't tell you everything. Agreed. They leave some things open for your imagination to fill in.
1: Exactly. It's kind of the, the Hitchcock theory of horror. It's what mm. you don't show is what really kind of lodges in your mind. Mm-hmm. Right. So definitely.
0: Yeah. And the parts of this podcast that we don't air
1: are the most entertaining. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, the stuff the audience doesn't hear. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's great stuff.
0: Right. That, that stuff is fantastic. <laughs> I also like the fact that Virgil can vary his register. It's not that every line of poetry is the same. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous amount of flexibility reflected in these last lines that you read from Lombardo. Mm -hmm. They cast anchor from the prow, the sterns faced the shore. Yeah. It's kind of one of those throwaway details, but not really, right? The sterns face the shore, they're going to pull them up and this is it. This is the end of the sailing. Yeah. But rather than saying... Um, And so their their seafaring ended, and they finally came to Italy, and this part of my book is finished, Mm -hmm. which is so pedestrian. Yes. He suggests all of that by saying, they cast anchor, the sterns faced
1: the shore. The beauty is in its simplicity. Correct. And we're supposed to know, oh, that's it. No more boats. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So as we've talked about, we both appreciate... Art and music that demands something of its the listener of the audience, right? right. You you are expected to kind of bring something to it, otherwise you're not going to get out of it what um, what you truly really could. That's correct. Yeah. So um, what does that what does that mean? The gate of the, the false dreams. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, I mean the impression that I've always gotten. again again, it's that it's that bit of that that bitterness that tempers the sweetness. Mm. And um, I think Virgil wants us to kind of to think about yes yes the glory of Rome, but. But it comes with a deep, deadly cost. Just like Encyse just told his son, he says, "Yes, there's glory is to come, but hey, you've got some wars to fight." Mm-hmm. So everything comes at this deep cost. And so maybe just simply that the false, the the false insomnia just means that you know everything isn't as bright and is mm-hmm. always going to be bright and cheery. There's going to be a downside to it.
0: It's like those uh, chocolate bars they sell now with sea salt. Oh yeah. Have you had one of those? I'm not a fan. No. There, so, there,
1: have you had one? I have. Yes. Okay. Exactly.
0: You don't like the the rich sweetness mixed with something
1: savory and a little bitter. I, it's not my kind of thing. Really? But I understand why people like it.
0: It's but, because you have to have contrast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I guess so, right? Isn't that partly what we're getting here? I guess so. It's the it's the, it's the the salty and the sweet, right? Mm-hmm. Or, it's a, or like a... I, I mean, I do like a good piece of, of like dark chocolate. Right. And like a, a very good piece of dark chocolate will in your mouth kind of combine the bitterness okay. and the sweet together. So yeah, I'm with you. I'm All with right. you. All right. All right. Okay. So next week, we're on to book seven, right? We're
0: on to book seven. And I think probably what? Shall we do... A one episode or maybe two on seven before we take a little bit of a break from the Aeneid and go in an unexpected direction?
1: I think, um, yeah, I think we, we have one or two. I think the audience yes. can expect um, um, uh, something something different.
0: We're going to get into the Iliadic portion. Mm-hmm. We've got to have some battles. We've got to have some bloody fights and heroic scenes. Mm-hmm. Then we'll take a little breather. Sounds good.
1: All right. Um, Before we go, Dave, you want to tell us a little bit about the Moss Method?
0: I do, yes. I would like the listener to go to mossmethod.com, please, and check out many of my free offerings for the teaching of Greek. And if you like the way that I teach, you like the, what, uh, the thoroughness, I don't know, the precision. These are some of the hallmarks of how I teach. Other people, you know, maybe more entertaining, so on and so forth. But I try to be really, really thorough in my Mm instruction. So if you pay attention, you're going to get a lot. Sounds good. Check it out. And uh, if you like what you see, you can sign up for the course. It's $325. We're going to be running a Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. Wait, the Black Friday Monsai? I know you love that, Jeff. (laughs) The Black Friday Monsai. It's coming up. All right. It's coming up right after the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. And uh, you can sign up. And uh, what's the slogan we like to use? You go from
1: uh, from neophyte, right, all the way up to erudite. Is there no middle ground?
0: Like, uh, what's what's halfway between neophyte and erudite? I don't know. Must you it? fight? Must must you fight? A l- <laughs> Something like yeah, that. Yeah, we need we need another it in there. We don't do, we, right? Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> check that out, and you're not going to be disappointed. No. Uh, I've taken several students successfully into a deep and rich knowledge of the Greek language. Yeah,
1: MossMethod.com. You can check out a lot of free stuff, right? Um, and the course also um, promises lots of access to you as That's a teacher. Correct. Right? You
0: get the office hours every Friday. I'm holding them tomorrow, as it turns out. Fantastic. And I'm also offering a Latin program. LatinPerDM.com/slash/llpsi. So this is a From the Ground Up and initio Latin course using Hans Orberg's Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata. Uh, combine this with the more than 1,900 free Latin lessons I've put on YouTube. Yeah, you got
1: that many now? Yes. That's amazing.
0: I'm getting close to 2,000 and uh, pretty much any author you can think of, almost, almost, I have covered in some form. Fantastic. And uh, you can access that stuff for free or you can sign up for the paid course.
1: Sounds good. Hey, we got some people to thank, as always. uh, Thanks to Mishka for all her hard work in putting this all together, making us sound better than we actually are.
0: We got the blistering guitar licks of Scott Van Zandt and the bumper music that Ken gives us uh, for the ads great stuff great stuff really talented guys they've got a ken tamplin vocal academy you can watch him take down a number of classics it's pretty funny oh
1: it's very good i highly recommend
0: <laughs> someone described him as uh what contagiously nice <laughs> 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 and uh scott also uh gives guitar lessons if you want to learn to play like that and you know you've got 20 years to practice cause yeah Guy's amazing. yeah
1: fantastic. All right, hey, um, if you want to shout out, you got a question, you got a suggestion, you got a complaint, you got a correction. Um, write to us. You can write to Dave at Dave at ad nauseum.com don't forget the V. Or you can write to
0: Jeff at ad nauseum.com. Do not forget the V. Yeah. We got another nice suggestion this week from another listener. Maybe we'll air that on the, uh, yeah. the podcast next week.
1: Sounds good. Yeah. Check out ad nauseum.com again. Don't forget the V. Yeah. And maybe pick up a, a one of the a t shirt.
0: Yeah, one of the Qui Nokent Dokent, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger t shirts uh, inspired by Erasmus or adnauseum themed mugs, t shirts, and hats. Every little bit helps the podcast. It does. This is a, a labor of love and a little bit of profit. Yes. So we'd yep. be happy to have your support.
1: Right. So next week, more uh, Aeneid. And Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot.
0: I do. And this is from a gentleman named Vikram Seth. And uh, let me just ask, first of all, Jeff, do you like a good mango? I do like mangoes.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: They're an enchanting fruit, aren't they?
1: They are. I don't, need, I don't eat uh, nearly enough of them.
0: No, sweet and intoxicating. Mm-hmm. So Vikram Seth says, quote, To steal yourself against mangoes showed a degree of iciness that was almost inhuman. I get that. I get that. Thanks Thanks for listening. Thank you.